My guest today is Professor Enrique Nedlet, who is Professor of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. His research examines the link between racism and health in African-American population. Welcome, Enrique. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your older papers from 2016 that sort of set the context uh, for our discussion. So future directions in research on racism-related stress and racial, ethnic, et, uh, racial et, ethnic protective factors mm -hmm. for Black youth. So you say research on racism-related stress and racial ethnic, ethnic protective factors represent an important enterprise for optimizing the mental health of African-American and other racial and ethnic minority youth. However, there has been a relative dearth of work, you say, on these factors in the clinical psychology research literature, and more work is needed in outlooks such as these. So um, racism-related stress in racial ethnic, ethnic protective factors of Black youth um, you know, I mean, I don't know much about this, Enrique, but anybody who has witnessed last 10, 15, 20 years will understand this. <laughs> I would imagine this intuitively, just, um, you know, without any, any sort of research. And so, so, so what do you find in this, in this article? What is the data that you're using and what are the conclusions that you're making here? Yeah, thanks for that question. This paper actually wasn't one in which we used uh, uh, any data, actually. It was more kind of a recommendations paper. And um, at the time, I wrote it with one of my former students, uh, Sean Jones. We were just, you know, kind of lamenting the fact that um, the research in this area, particularly in clinical psychology journals, had been really limited. There were some fields of psychology like uh, developmental psychology that did a little bit better in terms of, you know, thinking about the development and some of the challenges that Black youth faced. But um, clinical psychology journals, probably in part due to the history of, of the field of clinical psychology, uh, didn't have as much attention uh, devoted to kind of understanding the race-related experiences of Black youth. And so, uh, in this paper, we wanted to think about, you know, as we move the field forward and, and as you alluded to some of the uh, things that were happening at the time, how could we, you know, kind of address um, some of the, the things that Black youth in particular were facing at the time? Yeah, so Enrique, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, sort of initial conditions, uh, which is, I believe, is not well appreciated. So when we measure outcomes, initial conditions matter a lot, right? So, you know, we had a recent president who said, I was given just a few million dollars and uh, look what I have accomplished. <laughs> if you give a few million dollars to a lot of people, they will accomplish a lot actually, uh, but we don't have that luxury. Um, but more importantly, there, if you are sort of stressed, um, you say it's racism related stress, it has long-term implications for health, for economics, uh, for societal uh, aspects. So it's a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, it's not well appreciated, I think. That's what you're saying in this paper, I think. Yeah, no, and, you know, uh, racial discrimination, which is the primary form of racism-related stress that we've examined in our work, uh, has been found uh, in a number of studies, including meta-analytic studies, to be related to um, you know, any negative mental health outcome you can think of, there's probably been a study um, showing that um, increase in discrimination experiences is associated with poor mental health outcomes. And that's even when you account for, you know, sort of general levels of stress. Um, you know, a lot of the studies initially were kind of cross-sectional studies. Um, and, you know, we know that um, even when you look at it across time, uh, you tend to find these increases in, in poor mental health over time. So um, that's, you know, certainly a, a troubling finding. But the thing is that mental health is involved in uh, almost everything that, that we do. And um, it's related to the work we do. It's related to our ability to concentrate and to function. 
So if these types of stressful experiences that people are having um, is limiting their ability to be productive uh, or to, you know, sort of focus, that's, you know, that's going to have implications for um, who's finishing high school. It's going to have implications for your ability to, you know, sort of maintain your job, um, ability to achieve higher education, which we know has implications for um, broader health outcomes. So it's all, as you alluded to, kind of interconnected. It's interconnected. It, it's also, I, I do some work, Enrique, in, in the AI area for primary care and behavioral health. And one of my pet peeves have always been that um, behavioral health and physical health are very related. And so uh, and I don't believe the payers, insurance companies, even CMS, <laughs> I would say, understand it uh, really well. Uh, if you have behavioral health issues, it's going to show up in physical health Absolutely. at some future point in time. Absolutely. And so, so the larger sort of economic question is, you know, how do you manage that, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, we are spending 4.5 trillion or something like that in, in, in healthcare costs. And so, so really looking at initial conditions, really looking at how, how the young people are growing up has huge implications for society, right? Absolutely, it does. And, you know, for a long time, Still in, in this area, a lot of the studies just kind of focus on one uh, time period um, and not um, looking at things from a developmental perspective. Um, and as we like to point out to folks, these aren't, you know, uh, health taking a, a term for the worse. Um, these are things that start um, even before, uh, you know, a child is born, for example. Um, they can be mediated by um, the health environment of the, the intrauterine environment, uh, mom's health. Um, if mom is stressed out, that has implications for um, genetic expression or expression of genes, um, those sorts of things. So uh, what I you may have seen in a number of the, the papers that I shared with you is um, a real push to have a more developmental um, perspective. I alluded to drawing on kind of developmental health um, and all that means is just this idea that, um, you know, if we want to understand why um, there are these disparities uh, later on, why people are dying earlier, why their health outcomes are poor later on, uh, we've got to start understanding, you know, I focus on adolescence, but um, even by the time you get to adolescence, um, recent research is showing that things are already starting to, you know, kind of, um, you know, worsen. So. I think that perspective is important. It's hugely important. And it is hugely important from an economic perspective. And, and this is what policymakers don't seem to really understand, right? So, um, you know, it's very troublesome. <laughs> we send a bunch of idiots to Washington. They don't seem to really understand what's, what's happening in society. Um, Anyway, I mean, that's, I, I want to go too much into it. So, so I want to go into another paper. So you say OC symptoms, these obsessive compulsive symptoms. And I, I knew nothing about this, Enrique. I found this fascinating. So OC symptoms in African-American young adults, the association between racial discrimination, racial identity, and obsessive compulsive symptoms. You say all the studies illustrate the role of racial discrimination as a risk factor for increased psychiatric symptoms for African-American young adults, mm -hmm. none has explored the link between racial discrimination and obsessive compulsive symptoms within such a sample. And so, so, so you have you have some sort of kind of a study here. So this is this is sort of eye-opening for me. You know, um, OC symptoms is not something that you typically think about connected with racial discrimination, but but we are finding robust data here, right? Yeah, so most of the studies that look at, um, you know, the most common uh, psychological outcome people tend to pay attention to would be things like depression and um, anxiety symptoms. Um, OCD, um, depending on who you talk to, is a, is a, a, a you know, um, linked with anxiety disorder, linked with anxiety. And so, 
Uh, I, this paper again was uh, led by one of my former students, um, Dr. Henry Willis, um, who had studied um, OC symptoms and was interested in saying, look, well, we always look at depression, we always look at um, general anxiety symptoms, but um, could this also apply specifically to this set of symptoms in terms of um, thinking, you know, these sort of obsessive thoughts um, or compulsions that people engage in to kind of re re relieve some of the stress that's associated with these kind of intrusive thoughts that people have sometimes. Um, and in this paper, um, you know, we found that um, it, there, there was a link depending on what type, type of racial identity you endorsed. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So obsessive compulsive symptoms may be sort of a proxy for um, I don't know if it's Enrique, um, could be a proxy for sort of long-term psychological or psychiatric issues um, for a population. And so if you're picking this up early, is it possible, I don't know if you can find this from the data, is it possible that we can pick up sort of OC symptoms early in a, in a population that is sort of stressed out uh, because of the all the issues, discrimination, identity, and all that stuff that you talk about here? Yeah, there hasn't been a lot of work um, in the racial discrimination uh, context, at least looking at, you know, kind of early signs or early um, factors that um, sort of warn us what could happen later. So, um, you know, there is a, a movement uh, within the mental health field to try to identify um, things that kind of cut across um, different, you know, kinds of experiences that might say that serve as biomarkers um, or indicators that um, someone may be at increased risk. Um, but that hasn't been done um, and that wasn't done in, in our research. Again, we were um, trying to understand how do discrimination experiences lead to um, increases in OC symptoms over time? Um, and to what extent does how you define yourself uh, as African-American um, either, you know, speed that along or, you know, protect, uh, protect you. And one of the reasons we looked at this is because in general, racial identity, uh, when an individual says being Black is really important part of who I am, um, there are countless numbers of studies that show that that tends to be a protective factor. It will kind of attenuate or mitigate um, the impact of racism on um, negative psychological outcomes. Um, in this study, we actually found the opposite of what we expected. Um, so um, if you read the paper, um, when we looked at racial identity, we used a profile analysis. Um, we didn't just look at, you know, one specific aspect of identity. We didn't say you have high identity or low identity. Uh, we looked at a number of different dimensions of racial identity. Um, and to our surprise, what we found is that um, the kind of race-focused racial identity profile, um, so these were individuals who said being Black is really important um, to my identity. Um, I feel proud to be Black. Um, those individuals actually had a stronger association between discrimination and increases in OC symptoms. So uh, in, in most research, people who have a strong sense of identity, people who feel positively about being Black, um, tend to show the most favorable mental health outcomes. And in this paper, we actually um, were a little taken back when we found that the folks who actually had the best uh, outcomes were folks who didn't have strong, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, feelings about being African American, if you will. This is this is so fascinating, Enrique. So, I mean, it has applications in other groups in the U.S. too. Um, I would imagine immigrants from you know various countries and so on and so forth. And uh, I know that this paper didn't get into it, but what is your sort of gut feel about so i mean we are a multi um, ethnic multi diverse country and we have groups of people here um, you know who sort of uh, subscribe to those subscribe to those things 
Um, what's your gut feel about people who sort of strongly subscribe to a culture or an identity? Um, in other words, that, that's the that's the uh, the results here sort of uh, is generalizable across ethnic minorities. Well, that's a great question. One of the interesting things about um, this particular finding is that when you look at racial identity in African-Americans, uh, again, there's a strong body of research that tends to find racial identity is a protective factor. It protects you against uh, negative uh, racial discrimination experiences, so on and so forth. Um, when we found this kind of counterintuitive finding um, that it was actually increasing OC symptoms, uh, we did some digging in the literature, and one of the things we found is that uh, when you look at certain other groups, and I don't remember which ones, but I want to say there's certain um, studies looking at um, Latinx populations and also Asian American populations, you can find a handful of papers that find the same exact thing, actually. So um, whereas it was kind of a newer surprise finding for African Americans, um, and that's where I focus most of my work. So I was surprised. But when I went to the literature, um, I found that um, for some groups, there, this had been found in other groups, um, and it's not surprising in other groups. So, um, you know, I think um, there may be differences across race and ethnic groups. Um, there's been kind of a debate about, you know, how uh, protective is it? When is it protective? Under what conditions? Um, some people have suggested with the, um, you're probably familiar with the um, Hispanic um, immigrant health paradox, um, that it may be, you know, immigrants have better health initially because they're in these kind of ethnic um, enclaves um, where they're, you know, eating certain foods, they've got the social support, and then the longer they're in the U.S., um, things <laughs> start to go um, in a different direction. But uh, this seems to suggest that there is some protective, you know, uh, or resilience sort of conferred by having this sort of strong sense of belonging and connectedness to your group. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the findings also suggest that there are cases when that's not always the case. Um, and so we're still trying to, you know, sort of um, parse out when when that is. Um, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, in some sense, I feel like Enrique, there's a sort of binary outcome in the sense that so immigrant coming into this country, um, he or she has sort of two ways to sort of go, right? One is to uh, find solace um, with your own kind, so to speak, mm -hmm. or you say, I'm going to integrate with society and move away from your own kind. In some sense, it's a binary outcome, in my view. I, I don't know if, if this is true or, or so. I have no no data, Enrique. It's sort of a gut gut reaction to it. And I find um, I find some people who who feel very comfortable with you know their own kind, and I find some people who want to just totally integrate um, and don't have anything to do with their own kind. Mm -hmm. And so, so what? What I think what you're highlighting here is that that binary outcome has some net effect on your personality or 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 your future psychiatric issues, right? Is that yeah, it it can it can. We're still kind of learning about it, and it seems like uh, one of the uh, hypotheses we have right now is that it really depends on the context that you're in. So it may be that um, if you're in a high racially stressful environment, uh, in that situation, um, it may be beneficial to, you know, sort of, you know, uh, affiliate with other people in your group. There may be a protective uh, affiliation or protective effect. Um, whereas, um, you, you know, you may not need to do that um, in a setting where, um, you know, everyone looks like you and there's not as much uh, discrimination. So we think that the, the context matters. Um, to your question, uh, or sort of thinking about it in a binary 
The research actually suggests that it's not necessarily a binary. So there are lots of different ways to think about identity and um, you do have exactly, you know, the kind of two groups you describe where people kind of go one way or the other. Um, but uh, these same sort of profile analyses have also revealed that you have some people who actually do both and. So they, um, you know, they say, look, I want to be part of American culture, but I also think, you know, um, you know, my host culture, my, you know, my, um, you know, sort of racial and ethnic group is really important to me. Um, and so they kind of embrace both. Um, and in fact, um, there's some studies suggesting that um, the extent to which you, you know, kind of embrace both and can kind of go between both worlds may be actually a skill that um, confers some additional protection as well. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Enrique. So I was talking to the economist from France yesterday. Uh, I grew up in, in, uh, in India and um, countries with high levels of immigration uh, is, you know, gives us a lot more data, a lot more interesting data. Um, but there are countries that has very low levels of immigration, like India, for example, but has very high levels of segmentation for a variety of reasons, right? And so your findings here would be very interesting to, <laughs> to look at, you know, sort of closed countries but but they have you know a class system or something like that and how do they behave internally um, between the classes you know in some sense this is for the us it's sort of a class system right i mean um you know a famous uh, senator recently <laughs> remarked uh, you know, differentiated between African Americans and Americans, um, mm -hmm. which was uh, quite interesting. Um, That's one word for it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it is sort of putting people in boxes, isn't it? I mean, and then we are trying to figure out if those boxes have some validation. Um, it, it's painful to think about it, but that's where we are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. It, it is it is painful. I, I do think there's a lot of nuance here that um, kind of gets lost. And um, I, I would love uh, most of our work or all of it actually has been um, in the United States. Um, I do. I would love to look at um, some of these same relationships that we've done in other uh, countries that have, you know, sort of different contexts, because I think they would help us to understand a little bit about how these processes work. Um, we're actually, I'll just mention really quickly, um, have a, a research study right now funded by the National Science Foundation, where we're not, you know, in another country, but we're looking at, uh, we've got two universities, um, the work is being done um, in partnership with Howard University um, in Washington, D.C., which, um, as you know, historically black college and university, and what we've argued is that how racial identity um, plays out and the extent to which it's protective um, depends on the context. So if you're in, I mean, I, I obviously it's not the same comparison, but if you think of um, Howard as kind of like how you're describing um, India um, and then the other studies being done here at uh, University of Michigan, which is a predominantly white context, you might imagine that how identity functions um, and the effects it has on mental health is going to play out um, in different ways um, in the context. And actually, what we've argued and the reason we did this study is that one of the reasons you find conflicting or opposite findings is that if you don't take the context into account, um, that may explain why in one context you find identities, you know, doing great things and another context it's, it's not. So, um, again, hopefully we'll get to the international studies at some point. But the purpose of this study is to look at how places that have different hierarchical structures or different cultural contexts might kind of change how identity operates. Yeah, so context makes a big difference. Um, especially from an identity perspective, as you say. So I want to go into a recent paper that you have, the influence of internalized racism on the relationship between discrimination and anxiety. 
Mm-hmm. So this study, you say, used two waves of data to longitudinally examine whether internalized racism are moderated, the association between racial discrimination and anxiety symptom distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, this again, you know, goes back to what we are talking about before, which is all these conditions um, have long-term effects on society. And so if, if we don't diagnose it, if we don't understand it, if we don't proactively intervene, it's going to have huge impact downstream, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yes. what do you find here? So you say participants of 157 black college students attending a predominantly white institution who completed measures of racial discrimination, internalized racism and psychological distress. So, so what do you find in this study? So what we find in this study is that for individuals who have high levels of internalized racism attitudes, it actually exacerbates or worsens the impact of discrimination uh, on their levels of anxiety distress. So uh, just in case, you know, um, people who are listening may not be familiar with internalized racism, Uh, A number of scholars have argued that when you are exposed to constant negative messages about your group, um, you may actually begin to uh, believe these negative messages um, and they, you know, sort of influence how you feel about yourself. Um, They may, um, you know, actually make you want to change, you know, your identity to be a different group that you perceive to be more favorable. Um, So one particular aspect of uh, internalized racism is having attitudes um, that endorse changing your appearance, maybe lightening your skin or wearing a different hairstyle that more fits with Eurocentric, you know, standards of beauty. Um, And what we found in this study, uh, we looked at internalized racism in a a couple of different ways, but um, people who had internalize these kind of negative uh, beliefs about being black um, and particularly people who there's a a dimension called um, hair change. So these are people who say, look, um, we should change our hairstyles. We, you know, we shouldn't, you know, wear our natural hair. Those folks were, you know, even more vulnerable when they did experience discrimination their anxiety distress went, you know, kind of off the chart or, or through, the, through the roof. And so um, the combination of, you know, sort of this negative beliefs about being African-American um, in the context of actually experiencing discrimination spells a negative mental health uh, picture. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so... I, I wonder, so, so do you see some sort of a policy? Well, I don't know if the policy, but do you see some sort of intervention here that could be? So is it education? Is it, I know that, you know, the first five to 10 years, how the kids grow up can have a significant effect for the next 70 years. Uh, so, so do you see some sort of intervention in the five to 10 year time period? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I think um, it, it requires me to take a, a step back a little bit. Um, one of the things I'm always telling my students is that, um, and you saw this probably across a number of the papers, is that we often focus our interventions at the um, kind of individual level. Um, so we, uh, you know, kind of design interventions that help people to kind of talk about um, their feelings or discrimination, or we do, there's a lot of um, attention in recent years to kind of implicit bias training and, and things of that nature. Um, but one of the arguments that we've made is that um, if you're just kind of operating at that individual level, it doesn't really get at kind of the root um, kind of fundamental uh, cause um, of the issue. And so Um, your question about whether I see an intervention in, you know, five or 10 years, there are lots of interventions and things people are trying to do now. The issue is that a lot of them don't focus at kind of the structural level or they don't focus at higher levels. They're they're kind of, again, at the level of interpersonal interactions. Um, 
I, I love that you asked this question in the context of internalized racism because the belief is that internalized racism is a byproduct of something we call cultural racism. Um, cultural racism is this idea that um, when you turn on your television, um, when you look at social media, the depictions and representations um, of Black people um, are often negative. And so part of the reason people come to internalize these negative beliefs is because of, um, you know, kind of the, um, the negative uh, portrayals of Black people on TV shows, uh, what you see on the nightly news, those kinds of things. And so thinking about it from an intervention perspective, uh, what I would love to see in the next five or 10 years are interventions that begin to get in, um, to intervene at the level of media and at the level of culture. So are there, um, you know, policies that can um, sort of play a role in how people are depicted um, in media? Um, are there ways that we can actually get at some of the negative representations um, that we see in community, that we see on billboards, media communications, health communications, those kinds of things are a very different level um, of intervention than we currently kind of tend to, tend to privilege. Yeah, so Enrique, I don't know if it's possible, right? No, I, I think about sort of foundational education question here. So Homo sapiens, 100,000 years, 200,000 years, pick your, pick your time span. Mm -hmm. um, suppose I take a sample, a random sample from around the world today of 8 billion people. Sweden, Congo, India, Australia. They have two different samples. From a genetic perspective, we couldn't tell these samples. So what, they, what that tells us from a foundational perspective is that there is no genetic difference between the 8 billion people that we have on this on this planet. Um, but we, we uh, you know, we spend so much time on surface features has no meaning. So that's sort of foundational knowledge, it's foundational education, but we don't seem to do that very systematically, right? I mean, do you think that will make a difference? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just asked. So when you say make a difference um, and you're looking at education, so what would be the thing that you're arguing might make a difference? So, so I'm saying, you know, suppose we take first graders, and rather than teaching them, you know, basic stuff, we teach them Homo sapien evolution. Um, we went through, we went through a bottleneck. Uh, there were only fifteen thousand samples left at some point, um, and so every human being on this earth is interrelated at ninety-nine point five percent level. Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm, you know. So if that is the first lesson, you know, a first grader learns, I think that that could make a difference. I mean, I, I'm not an educator. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, rather than learning physics, chemistry, and biology, maybe what we should teach kids is really Homo sapien evolution. Well, um, you know, it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I, I find it intriguing. Um, you know, I. I think one of the things that I always often think about is because um, I also study racial socialization, which is how we teach, uh, you know, or how do parents talk to their kids about race and how do they learn the things that they learn. Um, kids are not born um, thinking about the world one way or the other. They, we, I, so I think your point that education is important um, plays a role in how we come to operate and treat other people and things of that nature. And so could it be that if we, you know, kind of taught people um, what you're su suggesting, um, that we could get rid of kind of the unfortunate kinds of ways that the world tries to play out. Uh, part of the challenge is that the adults who have already been, you know, sort of inculcated in that um, sort of system are still part of the picture, and so how do you how do you get rid of that? So yeah, sure, I, I like the idea that we can teach kids um, this, but um, that would also mean I, I think for it to work, 
um, the adults themselves would also have to um, be open-minded and have, you know, kind of this understanding. And they can't by default because they've been socialized in a kind of racist, uh, you know, structure that says here's the hierarchy, here's who's at the top, who's at the bottom. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to think about how we would how we would do this. Yeah. So it's always others who are the problems in reality. I'm I'm very optimistic about the next generation. I'm very pessimistic about our generation, I would say, because we are a walking accumulation of biases that we don't we don't seem to be able to get rid of. <laughs> and so, so I hope tough. that when our generation checks out, maybe things get better. <laughs> it's tough. You know, here, here's part of the issue. The issue is that the beliefs and attitudes are getting passed down through generations. So, you know, you would think that after one generation kind of dies out, we'll be in better shape. But the problem is it never actually dies out, right? So there's still people who have these unfortunate um, negative views about, you know, the inferiority of particular groups. And they teach their children that. Um, and so it, it just kind of perpetuates. So we'd have to figure out a way, how do you kind of get in there and stop that intergenerational transmission? Um, one of the ways that we do that is exactly what you suggested. It's education. Yeah, but okay. we're in a, in a system where, you know, there's great um, inequality in the types of education, the types of things people learn, the quality of education. Um, there's also, you know, uh, great inequity in um, who's going to, to college where, you know, a lot of um, college students that I've taught uh, kind of say, look, growing up, I wasn't exposed. I didn't live in a very diverse environment. It wasn't really until I came to college that I started to meet other people and and have that kind of experience. Well, um, again, not everyone's able to go to college. In fact, the majority of people don't go to college, right? So, um, you know, how do you kind of um, education we know seems to be beneficial in terms of challenging these kind of, um, you know, unfortunate ideas. But, um, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you create that opportunity for lots of people? Um, is, yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, one could argue that 500 or so universities we have in this country, colleges, universities, their remit is not just teaching kids who show up. The remit has to be a broader education of the public. Um, and I don't know if it's really understood. I mean, you can't really, I mean, if you're a, if you're a not-for-profit university, mm -hmm. you don't just sit back and educate the 2,000 kids who show up and pay $50,000 a year. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, but that's not good enough. You, your limit has to be educating the population. That's, you know, if you're not for profit, that's what you should do. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely um, correct on that. And I think another way that we can do it, although it doesn't solve the problem completely, is um, teaching that as a value in the folks who are, you know, who are, you know, the, the small number that. Um, get here is you know um, teaching uh, providing opportunities for folks to partner um, with you know sort of um, community organizations and um, to have learning experiences so that um, as they go out and become adults they value uh, you know um, teaching and um, sharing their experiences with people who haven't had um, the opportunity to go to a you know elite university or something like that um, but I, 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 I like that idea of thinking about going beyond um, just the, you know, the, the, the kind of select few um, to a mission that really values, um, you know, yeah. So, so one thing I worry about, Enrique, is, you know, University of Michigan, top university in the country, not everybody can get in there. It's really, really difficult <laughs> to get yep. to the University of Michigan. Um, yep. And so, so what happens to those who don't get in? 
the I mean, I'm not picking on the University of Michigan. I'm 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 saying more broadly. Um, do these universities have an obligation to provide some sort of broad education to the population? Um, I, I believe so, but I, I I don't know I don't know what the right mechanism might be, right? No. So I think they have to really expand these these. I mean. We are so good at education in this university. So the, the 500 universities we have in this country is superior to any other institution in the world. Mm -hmm. But why are we sort of, you know, narrowly focused on the kids who come in? How about the kids who could not get it? You yeah. know, I think that's what we have to ask. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I think um, it's very important. It reminds me, um, I think there's a larger kind of systemic um, structural issue here because, you know, um, why is it that we have the numbers of people that we do who are in, in poverty, for example? Why do we have um, people who still don't have enough food to eat in a country where um, there's plenty, there should be plenty of food, right? Um, you know, it's it's troubling. The the resources are not, um, you know, they're the, the the folks who need them sometimes aren't aren't getting them, and and there are things in place. I think why that's the case. But um, what do we do? We've got these great educational systems, um, but only certain people can access them. How do we make it so that that's not the case? And um, we also know that. Um, you know, when you look at education, the gaps, in, you know, in, in health outcomes, which is what I teach about, um, is just growing between folks who are college educated and um, those who, you know, have less than a high school uh, diploma. So um, it, it seems like the, the gap is increasing and um, that doesn't bode well for um, kind of increasing everyone's access to the, the things that we're talking about here. So, so I wanted to touch on a couple of um, interesting papers. So, um, very topical. So, you say racial residential segregation and economic disparity jointly exasperate COVID-19 fatality in large American cities. A lot of people have a good intuition for this uh, when you look at sort of even raw data. So you said that disproportionately high rates of both infections and deaths among racial and ethnic minorities, especially Blacks and Hispanics, in the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic are consistent with the conclusion that structural inequality can produce lethal consequences. You say, how are the nature of the structural inequality in relation to COVID-19 is poorly understood? Uh, you say we hypothesize that two structural features racial residential segregation and income inequality of metropolitan areas in the United States have contributed to health compromising conditions, which in turn have increased COVID-19 fatalities. Moreover, that those two features when combined may be particularly lethal. So racial residential segregation and income inequality, they, those features might be fairly highly correlated, I would imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so yes, they, they, yes, that's correct. And so we look at outcomes here in terms of COVID-19. We see a significant, significant relationship between those two things. So in spite of all, all of our claims about healthcare, um, you know, sort of available to the masses, it doesn't seem to work that well, right? No, I mean, we, we just keep it, um, doing uh, <laughs> these patterns just keep emerging time and time again. And we have tons of research showing that health outcomes, um, you know, are worse in uh, areas that, that don't have resources or that don't have access to health promotive resources. That's oftentimes the case in places where there's high levels of segregation um, and high levels of income inequality. But for some peculiar reason, even though we know that residential segregation is problematic and income inequality come, you know, sort of contributes to this kind of exponential increase 
uh, in the rate of cases and deaths, um, the same pattern, you know, still exists. You know, we, you know, when people were really surprised in the beginning of the pandemic, when um, it seemed like there were these disparities, and then, you know, every new variant that that came out, um, and these disparities continue to exist, you know, there was kind of an excitement, like, oh, we got to do something better. Uh, but, you know, I hate to say it, I feel like, um, you know, for the next pandemic or whatever comes along, the disparities are still going to be there. And the question is why? So there's also sort of a, I mean, you alluded to this in your previous papers, which is there's a foundational issue here. Um, um, segregation, stress may lead to comorbid conditions that we know COVID-19 uh, fatalities are highly correlated with. So we cannot look at this in windows. We cannot look at this in you know small slices of data. We have to really look at it, you know, more foundationally. Mm -hmm. um, COVID-19, you know, we might get COVID-25, <laughs> you know, a couple of years from now. Yeah. So, so what have we learned from this? You know, can we correct, can we course correct from where we are today? Yeah, so um, I, the answer is not easy here. I think um, what this paper shows is that some of the things that influence uh, health and health trajectories are these kind of big, uh, you know, sort of, again, structural kinds of issues uh, like segregation, uh, like income inequality. And so for me, what it tells us is we've got to figure out how do we improve upon, how do we address, again, the, the kind of root cause why is what is contributing to segregation what is contributing to um you know these kind of increased income inequality um if we can begin to chip away at the factors that contribute to those things then i think we may be able to make some progress part of the reason we're seeing the same pattern over and over again is because we're not doing anything that changes the, the the foundation and and part of the reason it's this is hard work when you think about things like segregation these were things that were legally sanctioned right these are things that have a long history over many many years so we're not going to be able to just wake up one morning and say oh let's you know uh, let's stop uh, you know mortgage lending discrimination um, let's you know let's open up all the the prisons um, which is another major form of um, institutional, you know, uh, racism. Uh, but um, how, what, what are the factors that are leading to why people are, um, you know, disproportionately incarcerated? What are the reasons that um, income inequality is the, the way it, it is? And until we begin to address those things, we're, we're going to just keep, you know, <laughs> having the same conversations. Yeah, so you have to go to the root causes. Um, I think we are, you know, sort of, it is a, we are a smart country, but we don't, <laughs> you, you, you disagree. <laughs> I think they're smart, well, let me not say that because I'll get myself in trouble, but um, yeah, I, I'll agree with the overall spirit of your statement. <laughs> I think there may be a few exceptions, but. <laughs> no, so, so we, we, we are not able to focus on sort of the, as you say, the root causes of the problem. So we are very good at band-aiding things. There are a lot of people in this country, I believe, who are very good at band-aiding things. But band-aids only work so far, right? So you have to really understand not just the symptoms, but the causes, mm -hmm. and, then, and then really uh, intervene at the causes, right? And as you say, that is a really difficult thing to do. <laughs> so, so I it's, know. it's difficult and it requires uh, a kind of, I think, um, determination that I'm not sure we always meet and that we always rise to the occasion. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes I think folks aren't even aware 
uh, one of the things that's really striking to me when the pandemic happened and there were these disparities, um, I would get a lot of calls from physicians and they would say, oh, you know, tell us more about why we're seeing these disparities. And um, they would say, like, you know, in med school, we don't get a lot of, you know, conversations about um, social determinants of health or its fundamental causes. Uh, we're, you know, we're, they're treating the, the medical problem. It's the medical model. It's very individual focus. And so if physicians are not attuned to kind of the kind of structural issues, then, you know, how are we going to solve um, the, the, the problem or the, the issue, um, I think is, is worth asking. Yeah, so I want to finish up with that particular topic, um, Enrique. So I don't know if you're on this paper or not, the clarion call of the COVID-19 pandemic, how medical education can mitigate racial and ethnic, ethnic disparities. Mm -hmm. So my daughter is waiting for her residency <laughs> Residency interview results. So, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so you say public health crises palpably demonstrate how social determinants of health have led to disparate health outcomes. The staggering mortality rates among African Americans, Native Americans, and Latin Americans during the COVID 19 pandemic have revealed how recalcitrant structural inequities can exasperate disparities and render not just individuals, but whole communities acutely vulnerable. While medical curricula that educate students about disparities are vital in rousing awareness, it, you say it's experience that's most likely to instill passion for change. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we learn um, about um, other groups and um, experiences that are different from ours by putting ourselves in situations where we're with people who are are different um, from us and who've had different experiences. So uh, we kind of talk in this paper about um, how, you know, kind of the old model is kind of one of, uh, well, it's not old for some people, but cultural competence where you're um, kind of trying to uh, master and learn everything you can about a culture. And um, in the paper, we kind of talk about this notion of humility or cultural humility instead, which is realizing that you can't ever know everything about a group, um, but that it's a it's a iterative process where you're kind of learning as you go and um, figuring things out and learning from other people and acknowledging that um, you don't have all the answers, you don't have all the knowledge. Um, this particular paper, um, came out of that same, you know, physician who, who called and said, oh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of these kinds of conversations in medical training. Um, how can we get there? And so um, in the, the paper, we kind of talk about a couple of um, approaches to, to improving on the current model. Yes, it's a three-pillar framework, trust building, structural competency, and cultural humility, as you mentioned. And so, um, so, so, so are you suggesting here, Enrique, that so clearly as you get more experience, you you know more, you understand better. But are you are you saying in the in the education aspect itself, we should be really sort of focusing on these attributes? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's mind blowing to me that when the disparities emerged. Uh, the racial and ethnic disparities we saw um, in the early COVID-19, people were really stunned and shocked, uh, you know, that these sorts of things existed. And when you, you know, uh, uh, those of us who either have lived this experience or studied this, we're kind of like, okay, this is not very surprising. This is the it's same pattern. It's the same pattern you see in just about everything else. So. Um, but but again, I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that um, a lot of um, physicians, these are folks with, with MDs, were really puzzled um, and, and didn't really understand this and were surprised, um, you know, that, that this was the case. So, um, you know, the structural competency piece is um, really focusing on education that teaches folks about how the structural factors play a role and how these disparities um, play out. And, and some folks just don't have a good, not through any fault of their own, 
but I think uh, we can do a better job uh, from an educational perspective um, in making sure that um, folks understand that it's not just about you know blaming the victim or individual behaviors. I mean, it's probably not surprising in a medical model that focuses at the individual level that you're going to you know attribute um, you know someone's negative outcomes to the foods they're eating or they're smoking, you know, that sort of thing. But we got to think about, you know, why are they smoking? Why are they eating bad foods? What do they have access to? This seems so obvious to people in public health, but, um, and, and others as well, but um, it's not obvious to a lot of people. And that's really concerning. Yeah, so if you never lived through it, it's not so obvious. Um, COVID-19 really broke this, broke this up in some sense. So, you know, you think about comorbid conditions, you think about diet, you think about stress, you think about your economic profile, and we can really see how those things sort of compound to the high fatality rate that we saw in COVID-19 mm -hmm. in some parts of the society, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, your point here, um, Enrique, is that, yeah, a fresh MD, my, my daughter is one of them, <laughs> does she really understand what is, what is, what is behind the screen, so to speak? You know, it's, it's not, patient comes in, you measure all the things and you say, you know, this is what you have to do. But what's more important is to figure out what happened last 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> patient, right? Yep. Uh, what happened in the last 20 years and what is the environment that that person is is going returning to after they leave the physician's office? I mean, if you give them um, a treatment regimen or ask them to, you know, exercise or do something, but their environment um, or built environment doesn't allow that to, to happen or it's really hard or it's not a safe neighborhood or things of that nature, then... Um, it's going to be hard to exercise if they don't have a grocery store um, that serves nutritious food in their neighborhood. Then we can say, oh, you know, folks aren't eating; they're not eating the right foods. But um, do they have access? You know, you know. So, so I think um, that those things. We're very fortunate. We have. Um, I teach in the um, undergraduate public health uh, program here at Michigan. Uh, but not all universities, it's my understanding, I'm, I'm still fairly new to public health, uh, have this kind of uh, program at the undergraduate level. A lot of my undergrad students are future physicians, which is great, but at universities that, that don't have an undergraduate program in, in public health, um, how, how are those folks who are going to be future physicians getting the information about the, the kind of structural determinants of health? Um, is is an important question. Yeah, it's a really important question. It has a lot of policy implications. It has a lot of economic implications. You know, um, I mean, this might be another podcast, Enrique. Uh, you know, so so what's the highest return activities for society? I would argue it's it's actually feeding the population healthy. It's keeping the population healthy. These are the two really important high-return high activity for society. Mm -hmm. But we, we spend very little in, in either one of these things, right? So neither does, I don't know about the Scandinavian countries. I don't know about the more advanced societies. Um, I haven't really studied them. But in the US, we don't really focus on them. And then we will spend millions and billions and trillions of dollars later to, to in band-aid policies, right? So that is what we have been doing. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's quite inefficient, <laughs> at least on the side. Oh, south. I mean, it is. We spend money, I mean, the, the amount of money that is spent locking people up, um, incarceration, um, that money, uh, you know, there have been analyses showing that if you, I mean, we, we know it's not that simple, but um, if you were to invest more dollars in education, um, that that would be um, a better investment um, than the amount of money that we pour into um, some of these things that, that are not rehabilitative. And 
that are, are even more expensive when you do sort of a, a, a cost analysis. So um, I, I, I agree, we need to um, think about where we put the dollars, but the fact that we don't do that um, suggests to me that there's something more, I don't know if nefarious is the right word, but something else is going on here. You and I can clearly identify, we can clearly see that if you put dollars here, um, it might lead to better health outcomes, it'd be better for society, better productivity, less disability, et cetera. But why aren't, why aren't we doing that? There, you know, we see that disparities exist. There's tons of research documenting that disparities exist. We even know some of the reasons that it exists, but the willpower or something, this nefarious thing uh, that I'm saying, uh, we're, we're not addressing, even though we know there's a problem and we know there's root factors. So what are we doing about it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good, good sort of philosophical question. <laughs> so, so excellent, Enrique. This has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed our conversation. This was a lot of fun. Maybe I'll come back someday. <laughs> Thank you.